Hey folks, welcome to another edition of The Electables. My name is Doug Thornell, and as always, I'm joined by top producer Michael Peliquin. Mike, how you doing, my, my friend? Things are going well, Doug. How are you doing? I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. It's been a little while since we've done one of these. Yeah. Um, that's my fault, folks. It's just been, it, you know, at, we're five weeks out from this election and working on a, a bunch of races right now. Um, but uh, there's, you know, there's there's a lot going on, obviously. This, this uh, general election right now is, um, you know, I think tight as a tick. Biden probably leading. Um, we're seeing a lot of polls in each state uh, every day uh, that that indicates that Biden probably has an edge in in the battleground states. But um, you never know, you know. And um, one thing for uh, Democrats that I think that you know should be um, uh, uh, encouraging is. Uh, the money uh, advantage that we've we've actually seen take hold uh, for a long time. Joe Biden was having trouble raising money. He seems to have fixed that problem. He's getting, you know, especially among low dollar donors uh, and the Trump campaign right now, even after a, a huge cash on hand advantage between him and the RNC to kick this campaign off. And remember, he kicked this campaign off, I believe, the day he uh, was sworn in. I think they filed his re-election papers uh, on the day he's, he was sworn in. So he's been up, he's been raising money for a long time. It looks like they've been burning money almost as fast as they've been raising it. Um, and so that's gonna, um, you know, I think cause the Trump campaign some issues. But at the same time, if you remember back in uh, 2000 and 16 Democrats had a huge cash advantage against Trump as well. We were, you know, had had, had an advantage on TV and um it obviously didn't work out for Democrats. So, um I know there's a heavy emphasis by by the Democrat by the DNC and by the Biden campaign to um to to make sure that folks understand uh and and make a plan to vote. And uh, if you can vote early, vote early. So um, I'm looking forward to the debates. There will be four of them. Uh, and um, I think it's going to be must-watch TV. Um, and one of the things that I think both of them are going to try to make the case is, you know, who's the best person to um, try to heal some of the wounds in this country. I, I think Trump is going to have a hard time making that case. But at the centerpiece of Joe Biden's Real uh, at the centerpiece of Joe Biden's campaign is really the fact that um, you know he's a healer and that he f and that he is making the case that he can you know bring folks together, and I think that's a great jumping off point for our special guest today. Uh, David Smick uh, is a New York Times best-selling author, and um, he's a he's a macro econom uh, economist uh, and. He recently um, uh, released uh, a film that he wrote and direct directed and and was um, and and helped find the resources for uh, a, a film called Stars and Strife uh, was uh, uh, released recently. Uh, I, I've seen I've seen it. It's a it's a really great film um, about division in this country, division in Washington. Um, how and how we can bring folks back together. He uh, interviewed a, a range of uh, of people, including uh, very senior level former 
uh, White House uh, staffers, including J- uh, James Baker, uh, Rahm Emanuel, uh, Leon Panetta. Um, and it's just a fascinating film. And I wanted to have uh, Dave on the show because, you know, it touches on some of the topics that we've hit on before on this on this show about um, about division in this country. Remember, we talked to Amy Spitalnik, who's uh, one of the lead attorneys against the white national who's who's suing the white nationalist groups who were involved in planning and executing uh, the what happened in Charlottesville. And so I just I, I thought Dave would be a great guest to 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 have on the show um, to talk about his film uh, and um, and really sort of hear from him on sort of what he's how he believes we might be able to sort of bridge some of the divides that exist. So, Dave, welcome to the Electables. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be with you. Um, the uh, you can hear me okay, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, Good. loud and clear. Good. I tell you how I got into this film. I'm not a filmmaker. I am. Uh, I worked for 35 years with some of the top investors in the country as a global macro strategist. I basically travel around the world and and uh, come up with um, investment um, ideas. And um, but I have from time to time uh, ventured into uh, writing books. I, I wrote a book in 2000. Eight. It, I started in 2006 because I said the, the big Wall Street banks hadn't a clue what was on the balance sheets and there was a crisis coming. And I, I called it Trust Me Paper, which is rather than get into the technical details. And, and, uh, and the book came out just as the financial crisis was hitting. So I went with my instinct there. I was, I guess, lucky, lucky once. But I, I had the second feeling uh, a, a year and a half or so ago where I felt like the country was in trouble because of uh, there, there was an epidemic of hate and division that was sweeping across across the country, and it was um, and it was really um, keeping us from solving our problems. And I must say, I was selfish because people say, "Why'd you do the film?" I, I did it because I'm worried about the kind of world we're leaving my kids and my grandkids. And uh, and I uh, so I went to um, you know I would say the top eight documentary. Uh, directors, filmmakers in in the country, and um, you know, I was connected enough to get meetings with every all of them except one who I met with his agent, and I explained the project, and I said it's fully funded. All you have to do is you know is um, you know take it on, and I because I, I think it's an important part. I need I think we need to stop and think before we just continue down this road because there's so many problems that that just aren't addressed and they're not addressed because we do have a hate industry in this country that's getting you know rich and famous off of off a of division and uh and dysfunction creating dysfunction so and they all said this almost the same thing they said well that's a nice idea but documentaries about ideas they don't uh you know the the big distribution companies won't be interested and i said well what about an inconvenient truth <laughs> and, and I even asked the person who, who's you know, the agent for the person who produced an inconvenience. Oh, well, yeah, maybe that was an exception or, or two. So I was about ready to give up. And my, uh, I had some friends who said, why don't you just do it yourself? And one of the things when I went to these filmmakers is I said, I sent a letter. I'd been in Washington for 40 years. I sent a letter to a lot of people I knew, including the, 
James Baker and Panetta and, and, uh, and Leon and, um, and uh, Rom Emanuel and uh, many others. And, uh, and I said, I'm thinking of do the, doing this. Would you be willing to be interviewed? And I was amazed. I mean, um, everybody said yes, with the exception of uh, President Obama, whose people said, well, he has his own film. Thing. <laughs> and uh, George W. Bush said, I don't do that kind of stuff. So, um, but anyway, so I went ahead and I said, all right, I'm going to produce the film. And, you know, I, uh, what I was really pleased about is that uh, the, the big Hollywood distribution company, Stars, which is owned by Lionsgate, they bought the rights. And in fact, on uh, September the 21st, they're, they're doing the grand premiere of the film. It has been available for the last few weeks on what they call pay-per-view, you know, uh, Apple TV, Amazon, YouTube, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But that, this is going to be, you know, all the stars' um, uh, platforms, which is, you know, potentially 30 million viewers who, you know, not all will watch, obviously, but who have access. So this film is going to become ratchet up. It's going to be highly visible. But um, I, I uh, so I've been very encouraged both by the people and the enthusiasm of the people that, when, when, you know, people ask me uh, why these people would participate, I said, well, they're just as worried as you. And it's, and it's, there's, there's almost like a reflection. They reflect about 80% of the country that is just exhausted now. And they say, look, you know, we're, we have a, a system of government that relies on compromise. But to have compromise, you have to have empathy. And empathy doesn't mean oh, you just have a nice smile and then you get everything you want. Empathy means you have to look at the other side and look at their fears and look at their dreams and say, what can I give them that is not as important to me because I want something from them that's important that may not be as important to them. And so, you know, it's, it's, um, that's, that, that is how our system works. And just to leave you with this, I, I remember Jim Baker, who former Secretary of State and White House Chief of Staff, he said to me, Dave, I'm, I'm in. But what do you want? Me? Why? Why do you want me? And I said, Well, we have, we have a whole millennial culture that has been told that you know the compromise is impossible, doesn't work that way. And I said, I, I remember in 1983, which for most of us is ancient history, but uh, the social security system was going broke, and you brought together two of the most partisan, ideological people who ever came to Washington. It, you brought together Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan in a room, and they compromised, and they saved Social Security. I did the same thing with Rahm Emanuel. I said, Rahm, you were involved in a lot of interesting deal-making in the 90s. And he said, yeah, well, so, yeah, some of those deals, you know, I was called a slime bag whore, and yet the same people who said that are now, you know, decades later praising those deals as masterful. So he said, but back then, I was nearly run out of time. But anyway, I wanted... You know, all of these folks, Leon Panetteris, to, to kind of give their experience about how the system should work. Because, you know, you look at something as basic as, um, as the economy, and it, it, I'll stop here if you want to ask, you know, go ahead and ask me uh, further questions. I don't want to just go on. But there's so, you know, there's so many things we ought to be doing right now economically uh, that we're not. And uh, yep. it's a mistake. So let me ask you this, um, because I'm really interested in the sausage making behind um, behind things. That's a lot. One of the things that we get into on this show, particularly on political campaigns. 
making a documentary, um, first of all, how, like, how did you go about putting this together? You already told me, you already just said about sort of how you, you know, you reached out to, you reached out to these document, uh, you know, documentary filmmakers, something they weren't interested. You ultimately got to deal with stars. That's great. But how long did the process take for you to actually make this film? And was there anything about the process that was surprising to you? Yeah, it's about, I would say it took at least a year and four months, give or take. Um, it was, um, and I had the ability to, you know, not have to go raise the money. And, and um, what happened is once the, you know, the top people said no, and once I decided to do it myself, I went ahead and uh, I thought, well, I'll hire someone to be kind of the director and, um, and then I will bring on a professional narrator and um you know and I'll, and I'll write the script or at least you know we'll and we'll we'll go from there so what i discovered in doing the interviews um was that um i think after the 28 uh financial crisis there were a lot of documentaries were, that did a lot of got you with public officials and they probably deserved it but um the there was kind of a feeling of well, Dave, you know, I agreed to participate, but I want you to ask me the questions. I want, I want to know you're involved because I trust you. I know you, and I don't know, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to make some young would-be director's career, you know, where, where they humiliate me, and I, and I can understand that. And so I eventually, I began, I, I quickly moved into a position where I had to ask all the questions. Which was not difficult. It was just you, yeah. you know. Then we had we put together kind of the first rough um, cut of the film, and we had a, um, a screening in Hollywood for uh, fifty-five directors and producers. Uh, and you know, they say what if you have if you know the right people, there there are these screenings and they're quite valuable. And these people come and they they're like focus groups. They really are, and they come and they take notes and they're, you know, because they want the same thing for their film. When they get, and they, their conclusion was, they said, first of all, they said that they're highly compelling interviews. They're saying, what we don't like is the professional smoothie narrator. And we, <laughs> what we want is, um, we want you to be the narrator, you to be the common thread. And I was rather shocked. And I said, they said, no, I said, this will become much more compelling if you say why, who you are, where you're from, and why you did the film. And then, you know, and then instead of having the narrator say these things, you say them. I mean, you were, you, you advised George Soros, you advised a lot of different people. People will respect you if they, but, but you have to be the common thread. I was somewhat reluctant initially, but I went ahead and uh, I, I am told in future screenings that they, they said they found that compelling because it was like a come with me on a journey, I'll be your Sherpa, that kind of a thing, as opposed to just a, an unknown face with a very smooth voice. And so that's how right. I got into it. Um, the editing process took about four months and it was, um, I, I began this thing, there was a, um, along the way, by the way, I, you know, I'm originally from Baltimore and um i uh, big fan I've, of baltimore yeah i've known uh, barry levinson the yep. you know the academy award winning director 
uh, and the diner and uh, one for Rain Man. He's done so many films. He's such yeah. a, an icon. So I, I went to Barry and I said, I'm thinking of doing this film and whatever. Initially, I thought maybe just it will be sure. Look, I'll help you. I'll give you advice. He said, I'm, I'm going off to do a film in Europe with Bill Murray. But I'll, when I'm back, he said, you, you call on me, but don't make it a short. Make this a you know, a full-length film. It's just too important. There's just too much to cover. So he's been, like, I would go to him and he would look at various cuts and he was extremely valuable because he would say, you know, you have this section, we got to make it more dramatic on dark money, for instance, is in the thing. And um, so one day I said, uh, he had made some interesting comment about something that I might do on the editing side. And I said to him, why don't you be our executive producer? And he said, and to my surprise, he, he agreed. So he's a really nice guy, and he he and that had that has given us a lot of credibility. You know, given you know, I come out of nowhere, you know, to to produce this uh, and uh, to create this film, and so he's been very very helpful. And in fact, you know, he's um, you know, particularly in the Hollywood set. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of excitement about the film. In fact, there's more interest in this film in Hollywood than there is in Washington. There, the, the, when you look at the digital marketing, the, uh, the people who are promoting the film for me, they say that you know there's, there's three parts of the, of the country where it's just off the off the charts: Brooklyn, New York, Manhattan, and Los Angeles. And they said it's just thing. And, and in fact, and why do you why do you think that is? I think part of it is, and I've had friends who are, you know, in Washington who said, I love the film, but I felt a little guilty that maybe I've been, you know, getting part of the making, problem, make, making money off of the hate, you know, when I could, when, you know, I could have written a column. Well, I, I, you know, one of the, one of the, um, uh, cast members is David Ignatius of the Washington Post. And, you know, David told me he's really terrific. They, I, David could read the phone book on camera and everybody would lean in and wonder, oh, this sounds interesting. But right. he, David said, um, you know, I'm very fortunate here at the Post because, you know, it's owned by Amazon. And But he said, I'm, I'm senior enough. I don't have people coming to me saying, you know, on your columns lately on social media, you haven't had enough hate. Because, and so we're not getting the clicks for the ads, you know. And he said a lot of young reporters, that's what they face. You know, if, yeah. you, if you write something that's positive, it doesn't have certain words in them, you don't get the clicks and you don't get the ads. And so he said, I mean, I feel fortunate, but I, I look at a lot of young people on the way up and they know. They know that the, the system is, is different. Journalism has changed. And so... Anyway, and he says this in the film, and others do too. Shelby Coffey, who's, you know, CNN and Washington Post and the LA Times, and so. Um, but I so uh, they, to me so so just yeah, go ahead. So so it, and I think that's a really interesting point. You know, in and you you interviewed Ignatius. You've talked to a lot of the a lot of these folks. Do they? And, and I'm curious. Um, was there anything that you learned in your interviews that you were surprised to hear from these folks? Maybe something that you walked into the process, you had this idea of this theme for a film about strife in the country and division. Was there anything that Rom said or James Baker or any of these other folks that you talked to, high level, you know, 
operatives and, and members of Congress and chiefs of staff that you that you sort of surprised you? Well, I tell you what, the thing that surprised me most was my conversation with a guy named Hawk Newsom. Um, mm -hmm. uh, he's the president of Black Lives Matter, Greater New York. And um, I, um, I had heard about this guy and I, I sent him an email, never heard back. And I sent him a couple more. And then I suggested, hey, why well, I'm going to be in New York. Uh, let me come up to the Bronx and let's let's have coffee or let's have breakfast, whatever. And um, so I, I went in to this. You know, he, I said, pick a place. I'll be there. I went in. Hawk comes in. He's in this motorcycle outfit with this what he calls this some this, this African jewelry that he had on with the Black Lives Matter T-shirt, and uh, and he comes in and and uh, you know luckily I wasn't wearing a tie or anything, but it was it was funny. And we sat down, and it was funny. Within about ten minutes, we um, you know we knew everything clicked. You ever meet somebody and you, you know I think part of it is we got talking about basketball and uh, yeah. And, you know, and he said to me, I thought you were one of these Wall Street guys. I was preparing myself for this. He said, you're, he said, you're a good guy. He said, I, and I must say, I learned over the years, because we've had a lot of conversations, both, both for the film, but also, but that's where I've, I've learned a lot about what's the feeling is on the streets. And I think it's been distorted a lot by the media. I think they're just, they're, they're, I mean, Hawk is a guy with a big heart and he's a guy with, uh, you know this notion of uh, you know that um, that uh, well let me put it this way the most interesting comment he made that's on camera is he said you know america beats the crap out of us but we still love our country yeah and I, and i said that's so contrary to you know what we're hearing what we're seeing on tv which is right you know i mean so you you said you were a basketball fan right Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we I, got, I assume I assume you saw I, I don't know if you saw Doc Rivers uh, interview from a couple of weeks ago. I did. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds yeah. me of what Doc Rivers said a lot. Yeah. Well, you know, he yeah, it's it's just maddening when you think I think the vast majority of, of, of people in the industry, they are trying to survive. And he kind of described to me just the general um, sentiment there. And it began, I really began to look for this film. I, you know, there are a lot of kind of social and political reasons for why we have hate. I mean, you can, you know, and, I, and the film goes over a lot of those. But I, I really concluded after talking, to Hawk, you, you have to talk about the economy. And you have to talk about an economy in which people are falling, people were in the lower middle class, but they felt, hey, I finally arrived. And now they're slipping back off. And right. that, that kind of sense of humiliation and loss of dignity is a very powerful thing because that loss of dignity leads initially to anger and the anger turns to hate. And we're sitting around wondering why people are so angry. Well, they're angry. It's, not, it's, it's more complicated than, oh, there's some rich people out there. They're angry because there's a sense that we have a decline in opportunity. And I, in the film, I, I point out that if... In the last you know, 30 years ago, if you were starting out, you had about a 25, and you were, you were born in the, the bottom 25% of the country economically. If you studied hard and you worked hard, you had about, about a 25% chance of rising to the top 25%. And that's, 
That's, that's economic mobility. That was, that's called the American dream. Today, if you look at it, you have about a 5% chance if you're, if you're born in the bottom of making it to the top. And so the American dream has is, is died for a lot of people. And I think in order to understand the divisions out there, I think we need to understand why isn't the economy you know, pro, you know, as dynamic as it once was. Why isn't it producing um, this kind of uh, an opportunity society it, that we... And how much do you attribute that to what is going to dysfunction in Washington? You, you've, you know, um, you've advised uh, Republicans and Democrats. Uh, right. Ronald Reagan, uh, former senator, New Jersey Senator Bill Bradley. Uh, yeah, I worked on Bill Soros. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm just curious. Um, well, I think it's how, how much is that based off of policy that is either not coming from Washington or is coming for Washington, but is favoring big corporations, millionaires, you know, whatever, what, what have you, what, what's your, or is it both? It's both. I think some of the, some of the reason for the, you know, the economic reasons for the division is, is not something we, Designed. I mean, in in uh, 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. Within several years, you had something called globalization take over. You had economies like the Chinese economy, the Indian economy. They all came into the capitalist club in one form or another. And uh, every both sides, both politically in the U.S., both sides applauded. They thought this is great, and yet. It was globalization was a paradox because what it did is, you know, you if you were a Walmart shopper, you could buy things cheaper, but um, but it also meant that these that your dollars went back to China and India and elsewhere in the world. They had to be recycled somewhere, and they came back and they they bought our treasury debt and other forms of debt. And what did that produce when? Very, very low interest rates. I mean, record low interest rates for 30 years. And part of that is inflation was low for 30 years, in, in, in part because of globalization. So what low interest rates mean for 30 years is a 30-year bull market in stocks. It, but half, only half the country owns stocks. So you had half the country participating in this grand party, and the other half, wage earners, um, flat to negative, real, and it was a kind of a built-in, you know, phenomenon that 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 led to frustration, led to people saying, you know, well, now I don't know why either party didn't figure, hey, we can either crush the market, or we can figure out how to get more of the country in a position to ride the financial wave. I know, you know, Cory Booker was talking about about dollar baby bonds, I, I, right. I've been pushing, I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal, and I've been pushing the whole notion of, you know, giving, if you can lend the Wall Street banks trillions, you can lend every newborn child at birth uh, $10,000 for uh, 60 years, and then with an interest uh, payment at the end, but uh, invested in a, in, a, um, in a stock market index fund. So these kids throughout their life, you know, 
can see what the, the miracle of financial compounding that made Warren Buffett so rich. Right. Those, now, would that those, be indexed to wealth or would that be everyone? I would. You'd probably, you, it's easy when you're talking about it just to make it simple. Yeah, you'd probably have a cutoff at some point. Yeah. But the point is, and you could also allow at some point in the process, you could take some of the funds of the profit for education. But the point is you, you've got to get large parts of the country as part of this. If, if this is how the goods, the, the fruits of the economy are distributed now increasingly by equity markets, not by wages, you got to, you can't just say, well, you know, I mean, here's what you had. You had the Republicans saying, marveling at the bull market. And then you had some Democrats, not all, but some Democrats saying, oh, we got to crush the bull market, which of course would have huge collateral damage to the economy itself. So yeah, I didn't, I don't think they saw this coming and I don't think they've handled it even up until now. They just seem to, I, I've been proposing this and I get these blank stares like, well, why would we do that? I said, how about because it's very unfair to have half the country, you know, have this windfall. And then, so the other thing is, I would just say is that, that we could have anticipated that after the 2008 financial crisis, the economy, U.S. economy became a lot more rigid and less dynamic. And uh, you did, so you didn't see the kind of, it became much more of a top-down, a corporate top-down economy. Look at it this way. After, after the crisis, what was left over was four big Wall Street banks control about 75% of all bank financing. I mean, that's absurd. And look at all the small banks and the community banks that were just wiped out. And they had no, no involvement in causing the financial crisis. And so we sit there and we, we, we've missed it, that we missed that, that, that the, you know, we left with a, a top-down system that's rather rigid. And that whole startup culture, and I'm a big fan of startups because I think they're the great equalizer. Women are starting firms twice the rate as, as men. Immigrants are 25% of all startups. It is the fast track to uh, break through the walls and through the ceilings. And yet um, it's much tougher to, to have a successful startup in this economy than it was uh, um, in an earlier period. I mean, you know, before the, before the financial crisis. Um, right. You have, corporate, you have a, a corporate mindset with huge power, huge fundraising prowess that has uh, ma manipulates bond, the uh, patent law, manipulates the tax system and the regulatory system and all the rest to the advantage of, you know, Goliath over David such that David doesn't have a shot. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that the two-party system is still healthy and a good oh. thing for this country? I don't, I don't think so at all. I think, um, I mean, I mean, look, Face it. Look at the two candidates we ended up with. You know, I mean, is this what they produce? Two candidates that. What, what amazes me about this race, and by the way, in this in this um, in this documentary, I, I I made a decision not to jump into the Trump mud pit because he, he he operates in the mud. Yeah, and I said, look, cable news and the internet are already doing that twenty four seven. I want to do a film about America's long-term interests, and I and I think that's why a lot of the of, of the uh, interviews are so compelling because people don't feel like oh I got to fight the Trump thing. I remember I mentioned this to uh, 
Secretary Panetta at the beginning of his interview, and he said, yeah, he said, you know, he said, that's brilliant. He said, I'm tired of that, you know, that, that near-term thing kind of repeating, you know, um, uh, the, the cable news lines back and forth. He said, it's much more productive to talk long-term. But I do think that I am, I'm, I'm amazed that we have two candidates. I hope Joe starts talking more, come, but they're not talking about the future. You know, they're, they're basically in the mud pit throwing mud at each other. Joe's try, I, you know, you can see Biden trying to, to um, you know, offer more of a productive agenda, but it's basically, you can, you can just smell it. It's going to be a, 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 a you know, mud throwing all the way to the November 3rd. And what does the country gain from that? So, yeah, I think there's, the political system has failed. It's failed to allow outsiders to come in. Um, the, the parties control who gets to, into a presidential debate. And I also think it, the way these parties are structured, the fundraising structure, that, and the way, and way partisan primaries are set up, they're set up so that uh, the extremes have an enormous advantage in both parties. And so if, you are, if you're a problem-solving centrist, um, you're, you're in a risky position in, uh, in a primary because somebody on the extreme will go after you, and they will have uh, all of social media behind them because they're the excitement. They get the clicks. And so I think there's something wrong with the system. I mean, you are, in, in American politics, you are rewarded for not solving problems. You, are, you, you do well politically if, if you can make sure that the voter thinks a little bit worse of the other candidate than they think of you. And that's where we are. And, and nobody gets, nobody's rewarded for having brilliant ideas or for being able to pull together large. I mean, you're going to get 100% of the country, but 70 to 80% of the country that says, yeah, we'll, we, want, we want to solve our problems. You know, you, just to go back to this whole question of what could they do to help on the economy? Well, one reason that the economy is not as dynamic and there isn't this opportunity that we once had is our productivity rates are very low. Productivity means doing more with less. And one way to increase productivity is to modernize your infrastructure. And I'm not talking about just roads. I'm talking about, like, how about every household, you know, have access to, uh, to uh, a, a computer and a, a access to a um, um, you know, a, a, broadband. A broadband system that is, I mean, it's just, it's so obvious, but you know, there's so many other elements. I mean, we are, we are at risk of a cyber war, we're at risk of, 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 um, of, of other threats that could easily be solved with a, um, with an imaginative, uh, infrastructure plan. You know, the, you know, one, one of the things that government did well about 30 years ago, do you remember when they, after the Cold War, they, there was this commission to close the military bases that were obsolete as a result of the right. decline of the Soviet Union. Exactly. And the, I was amazed because I thought this could not be happening, but they established, a, you know, essentially a blue ribbon panel of, of military experts. And they just not, they decided not Congress, but they decided what bases would be closed because if you left it to Congress, you could have an obsolete base, but if it's, but if it's in the district of a powerful committee chairman, it would stay there, and, and an essential base might be closed down. 
it was unaffected. Why we don't do that for infrastructure beyond me, where we just say, look, we have, we are going to face challenges from abroad. We need to come together and modernize our infrastructure in a way that, that says we are, we are competing to remain the dominant economy in the world, and we can do that, but we have to do it in a smart way and put politics aside, or as Leon Panetta says, put country before party, which I think is a very powerful line in the film. Yeah, and I so I, I think I, I agree with a lot of that, although I would say that it, the, the primary system, if you look at the Democratic Party, I mean, you had people who were running to the left of Joe Biden um, and he was able to win and he actually and he won convincingly. I mean, he won the mm -hmm. primary. He picked he secured the Democratic nomination earlier than Barack Obama did earlier than Hillary Clinton did. And he is more of a, I wouldn't say a centrist, but he's a moderate Democrat who's pushing a very now, he's pushing a very, I think, a, probably the most progressive platform that Democrats have put out there. Um, and then I think if you look at some of the House Democrats and one who ran and won in 2018 to secure the majority, those folks, a lot of them are are moderate, are moderates. Um, mm -hmm. And they they are trying to you know reach across the aisle i mean i would say i'm a look i'm a i'm a i'm a democrat i'm a partisan democrat um i don't ever try to hide that in my podcast what i what i feel like um oftentimes happens in these conversations is there is there and i'm not suggesting you're doing this but when we're talking about washington being broken you know i do think that yes there are extremes on both sides but I do think that if you look at the, particularly the eight years under Obama, there was an effort early on to stop him by Republicans who did not want to work with him. And even though you had a bunch of positions, and I think this is one of those things that I, I'd love to discuss with you, you had a lot of positions that Democrats were advocating for at the time the healthcare bill was a, essentially a Republican bill from the early '90s um, that Democrats, you know, um, modified to make it work better. You know, even climate change and how to deal with climate change. The cap and trade bill was a was a, an idea that had a lot of conservative support. Um, the tax breaks and the recovery bill, but none of that ever got support from Republicans. And well, so well, I worked on the Hill for Democrats and I just so I I'm not suggesting that either party is that the Democrats are angels here. But I do think that if you look at sort of the trajectory of the Republican Party, particularly, um, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, it has become much more of a party of we're going to do whatever the opposite of what Democrats are going to do. And a, particularly now with Trump, it's like we're going to do whatever the opposite of Obama was. All right. I, I guess I look at it. I, I agree with you that uh, the, the Republicans don't have a lot to, to be proud of in that regard. I, I, I look at, say, the, the 86 tax reform, which I worked with, and that's, you know, I was close to Bill Bradley on this. Um, it was real tax reform. That, that is, you know, leaders of both parties got together and they said, this is going to be revenue neutral. And uh, we're going to have a, um, each side is going to give up some loopholes that, and, and then we're going to lower the rates and the, and, and lo and behold, we're going to make the 90s a very prosperous 
period, which I think happened. Um, but I think that if you compare that to the essentially almost down-the-line partisan um, tax reform that the Republicans passed and didn't go for, I agree, they didn't, they should have made it bipartisan. They, um, and they, and there was a lot of agreement, believe it or not, I mean, you don't hear it now on a campaign, but I, you would hear, I think even President Obama said, you know, we, we have to have a corporate rate that's the same or slightly lower than the European and Chinese corporate, corporate rate, but now it's much higher. Um, you know, I, you know, they, they, they should have brought the Democrats in and had a bipartisan bill and it, it would be a lot more, a lot easier to protect. And instead, they, um, it became kind of a spending bill. I think it, it, it cost a trillion dollars and they, and things that should, I mean, I was absolutely convinced would have been cut out of the, of the, uh, of the Trump, uh, Republican so-called tax reform bill. You know, carried interest, which is a, just a horrendous gift giveaway to the uh, private equity industry. You know, that was supposed to be removed, but it wasn't. But, you know, had it been bipartisan, it would have been, it's just been, it been a much more effective. I, I, I call what's going on the, the uh, partisan illusion that I think both sides, you tell yourself, if we win this time, we're going to control Washington forever. And then we can do whatever we want. So don't compromise. We're going to control it. And when we get it, we will dominate because the, the public will just love us so much. And we'll be in power for 50 years, a la FDR. It wasn't 50, but, you know, it, that, that kind of mentality. And when you look at the facts of the last 40 or 50 years, you know, it, just the opposite is true. The, you know, the, the, um, the Senate switches every four to six years. You got uh, 14 presidents, seven Republicans, seven, seven Democrats. You have a, um, a gen generally this, this kind of mood that um, 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 a president wins, takes both houses, comes in, says, we got it all. And I'm talking about Trump, Obama, Clinton. And yet two years later, back to divided government. I mean, the only reason Bush, George W. Bush, didn't experience that was 9/11. But then he, four years later, was back to divided government. Right. And my, you know, so so uh, President Obama comes up with a health care plan. You know, that should have been bipartisan. The tax reform should have been bipartisan. For one thing, it's it's much harder to reverse something that you know was that passed with uh, votes from both parties. I'm not right. talking about something that passes with 80 percent, but but it's just much tougher if you get a core group that says, "Okay, I'll I'll support you on this." But um, right. I I do think that um, I I agree with you. The Republicans are they they have not uh, conducted themselves well. I'm not as I'm 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 a little bit um, skeptical of both parties on this on this side because I think I think they're you know somebody was saying to me the these the, the leaderships of both parties, they have known each other for so long, you know, they, and they have grudges and they are just so, you know, it goes on and on and, 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 uh, and then, you know, uh, Trump adds to that sense of, uh, there's almost a psychotic sense of, oh, I hate the other side because of who he is. He is the incapable of, uh, uh, he's, a, he's the, the epitome of the zero-sum politician, you know, he's going to get 
in his view, he's got to get that 50% plus one and the hell with the rest of the country. And uh, you saw that in his inaugural where usually you would be talking right. about unity, but, but you weren't. But, but, right. um, but I do think it all comes back to, you know, political reform it, because if you, um, if you want to have something that 70% of the country can agree on, then you have to have people, you have to have a guy like Bill Bradley, who's left of center, uh, when he was in Congress, but not far, you know, not super far left, who could who could be the guy who pulls together, you know, the the bipartisan consensus? And I think there were a number of people in Congress who were like that, and yep. they, you know, so that's that's kind of I'm I'm saying let's be results oriented, and uh, right. I don't, for me, I don't really, you know, it, it, I don't since I I first registered as a Democrat when I was. You know, 21. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't really care about the party stuff. It all seems like a little game. And I don't, uh, you know, people making money, people are in their clubs and the Qantas versus the Lions Club. But I think the rest of the country scratching their heads and, you know, okay. What the hell's going on here? Yeah. I mean, yeah. We, I'm just trying to, you know, pay my bills and I got a sick kid and I got, right. you know, this and that. And I think if, if, if one party woke, if one leader woke up to that and said, and, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is a, I, I am going to represent the entire country, yep. not just one little segment. I think they went in a landslide. Let me ask you this, and I, um, you've been very generous with your time. Sure. Um, so, uh, um, you know, this will be the last question. Um, if you were advising, you know, whoever becomes, you know, whether it's Trump or Biden, um, obviously we're in the middle of a, of a global pandemic, a pandemic that has hit this country harder than any other country. Right. It's particularly hit people of color very hard from a health standpoint and economic standpoint. Lost jobs, lost loved ones, businesses closing down. Congress reacted actually given the, I actually think this is a moment, at least with the first couple uh, stimulus bills, Congress did act quickly there. Mm -hmm. um, but what would you, what are, and give me like three things that you would recommend that, you know, the president and the Congress, whoever they may be next year do immediately to get this economy, you know, moving again. Um, and uh, uh, obviously a lot of that has to do with containing the pandemic, containing the coronavirus, but let's right. take the coronavirus out of it. What are some things that can be done to help generate some income and income equality and get the get the economy rolling again well the first thing i would do is um, again a part i'm not an expert in healthcare, so i right right although i although i do think there there's a cartel keeping heart health care prices up and it, and it would take a bipartisan effort to take on the cartel but right. I the way I, I look at it is if I were advising whoever wins, let's I would say look, it you need to do a, a fifty state or however you know, you need to do a whistle stop tour of the country, a unity tour, and you need to meet with town hall you know people in town halls and all all the rest on a on on a mission to stop the hate. And then I would look at it and say, we have to, we have, to have an economy in order to have uh, a, a more fair system of, uh, of opportunity for all. We have to have an economy that's 
bottom-up, not top-down. So we're going to be an economy for the little guy, and I think there are a whole series of things that you can do that would be oriented toward that kind of bottom-up uh, sense of, uh, of, um, of, of, um, of economic dynamism. And, and uh, uh, then I would go and I would, do, I would argue for an infrastructure plan, a bipartisan plan, and I would look at it and build a case that for a plan in which the politicians are not involved, that it's a, a plan that's put together by experts who are not particularly partisan, but who are looking at the country's needs. And they are, and to me, that, that would, would be... Would you pay for that? Would you pay for an infrastructure bill or would you pay for it with a gas tax? Like, have you thought about... I'm not big on a gas tax or it's just so regressive. You know, right. it, it, I mean, gas tax... When, yeah, I do think that at some point you have a um, you or does have it pay a, for itself. You know, you know, it's funny in the, well, uh, yeah, you can make an argument. Some of it would pay for itself, but there's a guy in a, in the film in my film who was a co-founder of um, Home Depot, and um, and Ken is um, he 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 makes a point. He said, here I am. We have him in the film because he's an example of a big-hearted capitalist. Because he, he basically went into NYU Medical School and gave them a truckload of money and said, let's eliminate all medical tuition. Lan Ken Langone. And, he, um, and, and suddenly now you have half the medical graduates are women, and there's a big minority element. Because he said, We're not gonna have, you're not going to have hundreds of thousands of dollars of um, debt so that you have to become a neurosurgeon in Manhattan. You can't become a country doctor. You can't become a doctor overseas or someone who's helping average folks. So, you know, we do this. But it, during, the, during the filming, and I put this in the film, he says, you know, I'm not opposed to paying more taxes. He said, he said, I should. But he said, what it's all about is these people in Congress, they want the tax money so they can basically f feather their nest for the next election. And he said, if you can show how we could make the country better, he's not opposed to it at all. And I think that would be the sentiment. Um, I mean, I think if you, you, um, if you went around and said, look, you are, um, um, you know, this is, this is an infrastructure. You're not going to have control over it. But we're going to have to have a, some kind of a, of a surcharge here initially. I think it would be accepted. It's not going to be accepted as a punitive thing, or at least they'll fight it or they'll move, move offshore. But if it said, look, this is for the country, and uh, no one's going to get their name on the bill. It's going to be a bunch of faceless people who are experts who are going to you know, do this as a, you know, the way we did with military base clothing. We're going to do it because it's strategically in the interest of the country. I think... I think that's the, I think the revenue would not be a problem. Gotcha. Um, so uh, this uh, Stars and Strife, you can catch it on uh, many of the streaming uh, platforms. Um, well, and, and let me just say this: it's Stars and S T R I F E, Stars and Strife. Strife. I mean, it's been on the platform, but it's it it on September the twenty first. From then on, it is on the stars' channels, all their platforms, and um, it's uh, 
you know, potentially a, a it's a 30 million audience, potentially not all are going to watch this, but it's going to be a huge deal because stars is behind it and they're very excited about it. So I think, um, I think it's, it, most people who, who watch are, um, surprised about how emotional the film is. And I will just leave you with this one story. You can use it or not, but the, um, there is in the you know in the in the early on in the film to announce the credits you know who who directed the film who produced it who you know wrote it and all of us uh, who edited it they uh, there's a there's a a clip of a young Frank Sinatra I mean he's 29 he looks and it was from a 1945 film called The House I Live In. And he sings a song, which I happened to hear on the radio one day, and it has perfect lyrics that match this film. And um, so I found out that you can't, that, that Frank Sinatra's song from 1950 on are owned by Sony. So you can, you can pay to use the song. But anything before that, which is when this song I wanted was, uh, that's owned by the Sinatra family in trust. So I kept writing to the head of the trust saying, I'd like to use the song. Can you tell me, you know, get back? I never heard from him. Finally, I sent him an email and said, well, now we're going to have to go with another song. And I was, I was sad because I like, I think Frank Sinatra as a social warrior was way ahead of his time. And the reason I know this is I had a long chat once with Sammy Davis Jr. It was a, happened to be somewhere and there he was. And we talked for about an hour. And he told me about how wonderful Sinatra was to him. They would go to a hotel and there would be, you know, the management would say, well, this Sammy Davis Jr. had to be over in the colored hotel. This is back in the 50s. And Sinatra would say, well, great, well, then we're not doing your concert. And uh, then the guy would cave and, you know, it was the, the Rat Pack uh, at its finest. And so I, well, I told him that and I said, but if we can't do it, fine. So I immediately heard back and he said, okay, um, Mr. Smick, I will watch your film tonight so later that night i get an email and he says from the head of the of the sinatra trust the family trust and he said i watched your film with my 18 year old daughter we're here in quarantine and when it was over my daughter said dad that was inspiring and he said and she said uh, and the way things are going i needed some inspiration so the head of the trust said Congratulations, the Sinatra family gives you full use of the film, and we're waiving our $50,000 fee. <laughs> which, so, and I, I think most people watch the film, but they say they're expecting wonky stuff. It's quite emotional, and I think it's quite uplifting, but it's somewhat realistic, too. It, it's, this is not kumbaya or, you know, let's just all think nice thoughts and everything will be better. But I, but I do think most people say to me, that was surprisingly emotional for uh, a documentary, and, and uh, often they want to watch it twice because they said there's so much there that they want, and they and they see more the second time around. Well, it's always good to get the get the endorsement of the the late chairman of the board, Frank Sinatra. That's right. So, uh, so <laughs> that's uh, that's great. Um, so, hey, D David Smick, thank you so much for coming on the Electables. Really enjoyed the conversation. Good luck with uh, Stars and Strife. Uh, great film. I saw it. Um, and uh, it's great news that Stars is picking it up. Um, and uh, we really, really enjoyed having you on the show. Yeah, well, it's great. And good luck with your endeavors. I hope you can, uh, in your political 
operations. It, it's all fun to battle, but I hope the uh, you can get to your clients afterwards and say, okay, now let's govern. Right, <laughs> right. I hear you on that. Yep. I hear you on that. Good. Um, all right. So uh, for my producer, Michael Pelquin, Mike, thank you so much for, again, putting together a good show. Absolutely. I enjoyed, I enjoyed this conversation a lot, actually. Um, Look forward to watching the movie. Yep, yep. Um, this is Doug Thornell, and uh, this has been another edition of The Electables. Uh, we'll catch you next time.